Yeah. <laughs> it can event. Yeah. I'm in the search for peace at least. And a better spot to settle. Welcome to the show, Community Spread. I'm your host, Kevin Lundell. On the pod today, we have my new friend, Alfredo. And Alfredo is a dreamer. For those of you who don't know, dreamers are people who were brought to this country at a young age uh, by their parents. And they didn't really have a choice of the matter, but many of them have lived in this country for a long, long time and are now adults. And they still don't have citizenship rights. There is no path to citizenship for these people. This has long been a fight among legislatures. Uh, Democrats want to provide a path to citizenship for dreamers. And as a matter of fact, a lot of Republicans do too. It's the interesting thing about uh, the dreamers is it's incredibly popular. 80% of Americans think there should be a path to citizenship for the dreamers, but it just, they can't get a deal done. A lot of that is because it's so popular that they know it's the ch- a chance to pass a bill, but they want to tack other things onto it. And so it makes it really difficult for this bill to get passed. Uh, this American Life podcast did an episode where they followed Jeff Flake for 45 days back in 2017, 2018 time as he was really trying. He's a Republican senator from Arizona, and he was really, really trying hard to get a deal done for the Dreamers. Uh, the reason why Jeff Flake has such a passion for the Dreamers is because he grew up on a ranch and his dad hired undocumented workers. He had friends that were dreamers. And you think about what this show is about and about giving us the opportunity to step outside of our own learned experience and step inside of someone else's. Jeff Flake, part of his learned experience was getting to be friends with and having relationships with undocumented workers and specifically dreamers. And so he has a deep passion. He cares a lot about this community. It just so happens that uh, the party he represents doesn't care as much about it as he does. And if you, they follow him in this, in this episode, and for 45 days, he's trying to get a deal done, going back and forth with the Senate, with the president, and it's kind of heartbreaking that at the end of the day, they can't get anything done for the Dreamers. If you remember right, the government even shut down for a short time because Democrats were working so hard to get a deal done uh, that they the government actually shut down. They wouldn't They wouldn't um, sign off on a spending bill. And so the government was forced to shut down, and it was about trying to get a deal for the Dreamers. Uh, unfortunately, Democrats caved, uh, and we still don't have a deal for the Dreamers. And it's unfortunate because as we get to step outside of our own learned experience and hear from Alfredo's experience, you're going to see that Alfredo is a person just like you and me. He is an undocumented American. And being undocumented has so many effects on his life. Back in 2012, President Obama stepped up when afterwards he was unable to get legislation passed. He stepped up and signed an executive order uh, called Deferred Action for Childhood Arrivals. And this allowed people like Alfredo, who had been brought to this country and lived here for many years under no fault of their own, a path to not citizenship, but that would protect them from being deported, that would allow them to get jobs. And this was called Deferred Action for Childhood Arrival, also known as DACA. And this provided uh, a way for people like Alfredo to have a job and finally stop living in fear, stop looking over their shoulders. 
This was undone by President Trump, and he gave Congress uh, a six-month window to try to pass a bill uh, before he undid it. They were unable to get a bill done, but he undid it anyway. Turns out the Supreme Court stepped in. They said that he couldn't actually undo it, but he has since tried to undermine it in many different ways. He is no longer allowing new applicants to come into the program. He is making those in the program apply every year instead of every two years. This is a, a effectively doubled the fee, which is already $495, so it's $495 a year for a lot of these people are in the program for college as college students. So he's just made it really, really difficult. And this leads me into the next part of the pod where I tell you a little bit about what I'm thinking about or what I'm learning about. I'm literally recording this episode on election day. And there's part of me that's very, very hopeful, very hopeful that today is the start of a new America. But I also know that even if today is the start of a new America and Joe Biden is elected and the Democrats take the Senate, that we will have our work cut out for us. There are so many things that need to get passed. We're in the middle of a pandemic. A new stimulus bill has to be passed to help protect uh, those small businesses that are, that are being affected by this, to protect those families that have lost their jobs and need to be able to stay in their homes and get food. Healthcare is on the line. We are going to need expansion of healthcare. There's just so many things that we need to do pressing forward. We need to pass the John Lewis Voting Rights Act that ensures the voting rights of people of color. Yes, it's insane that in 2020 and 2021, we have to pass a law that enables and ensures the voting rights of people of color, but that's the reality we live in, and that law needs to get passed. So there's so much to do that I worry issues like DACA may be further down the list. I hope it's not because Alfredo needs uh, protections. Uh, Alfredo needs to be a citizen. He's, he's no different than you and me, and he needs to be a citizen. I'm also thinking about what happens if Donald Trump gets elected. And I've seen lots of posts on Facebook, and I know it's kind of vogue right now to say, whatever happens tomorrow, we need to come together as a country. And you know what? I don't buy it. If Donald Trump is elected today, tomorrow we fight like hell. We fight like hell for all of the people on this podcast that we've represented. We fight like hell for Alfredo and for his rights to live in this country and to be a part of this country and to give back to this country in all the ways that he has. We fight for people uh, in the LGBT community, which he is a part of as well. And Rachel, their rights are also on the line. We continue to fight for those in the homeless population that Van represented. We fight for our people of color, Michael and Jazzy and other Michael. And we fight for our Latinx community in uh, Malik. And we just keep fighting because their rights are on the line. And we're tired. It's been four years. You're tired. I'm tired. And it's going to be hard. So I really hope it doesn't happen. I hope we wake up tomorrow to a new America, one that we will still have to continue to fight for the rights of those who we represent and we have spoken to on this podcast. But there is a better hope for a future of a more fair, equitable, and just society. And with that, 
we turn to our conversation with Alfredo. Well, hey, Alfredo, welcome to the pod. I'm, I'm really happy to have you on today. Hi, hello there. Thanks for having me. I'm excited. Yeah, you know, uh, I've been really thinking about and wanting to have a dreamer on the on the on one of these episodes because it's one of those things with it. I've heard a lot about dreamers and there's been a lot of talk in the government in 2018, there was a big government shutdown. One of the big bills, the things that was trying to be pushed was some legislation that made it permanent status for dreamers. And the whole time I was rooting for the dreamers. I was like, yeah, but I actually didn't know anyone and I'd never actually had a conversation. So it was all kind of in the abstract for me. So I'm really excited to have you on today. So you guys, you can tell me what, this whole experience has been like for you. Oh yeah, obviously. And and I think uh, the interesting thing is, is my story is one of thousands, you know, there, everyone has uh, different um, aspects and views on it and how it's affected them differently. So I'm, I'm glad that you have me on to show uh, what I've experienced my personal experiences through it. I, I feel like I'm one of the lucky ones out of the many bunches. My experience is a little bit different than most, but um, I'm happy to share and, and educate and, and share my life with you guys. Absolutely. So take us back to the beginning. How did your family end up coming over to uh, the States and what time frame was it? Yeah, you bet. Time frame. Oh man, I'm the worst of math, but um, time frame. I feel like I'm, I feel like I'm, I am a U.S. citizen. I feel like I, this is my home and this is all I've ever known. Um, so to even think about or fathom the fact that, you know, this is not my home and this is where I'm not from is crazy and mind blowing. Um, it all started, I was born in Mexico, you know, a state called Guanajuato, small, small little town. My mom at the time, um, she wasn't planning on having kids. And, you know, it just happened to be she she uh, found out she was pregnant. And she was only planning for one and come to find out she had two. Um, surprise. So I twin, surprise, right? I have a twin sister. And so I knew when she would, she had to make the difficult decision, you know, and this was probably back in, I was born in 87. She had us, she was only expecting one. She ended up with two. She, she grew up in a hard life. You know, she had a hard life. You know, it, it was very difficult for her to have any kind of education, a meal, let alone an education, you know. Um, so it, it was borderline poverty. And so she always told herself, you know, I will be danged if my kids will go through this. So as a parent, I can't even imagine what it'd be like, but she made the difficult decision of leaving us where we were at with my grandma. My grandma raised us for about four or five years, maybe six years. She migrated um, to the U.S. probably that same year we were born, 87, late 87. Oh, um, so, so your mom decides having grown up in poverty and having really difficult life that she wants better for her kids. Absolutely, and, it, yeah. and in order to make that happen, she felt like she, the really the, the only way she could do it was to leave you guys with grandma and migrate to the States. That's, that's what happened. Exactly. Yeah. At the, and at the time, I think that that great old, like, imagine like a big billboard saying, you know, the American dream, come find it in America. And that's what she wanted for us. That's what she wanted for herself and for us at the same time. That is so hard to fathom, you know, mm -hmm. and and really, it's a selfless act because she, you know, kids are, I have a couple of kids and, and you know, I want the best for them too. And, but to think about like leaving them and leaving the culture, leaving my home, going to a place I don't know and doing it all so that I hope and not even a certainty, but that yeah. I hope that they can have a better future. Like 
That's intense. It is intense. And, and yeah, like you said, it's all uncertainty. Nothing's guaranteed. She she went on a whim hoping for the best. And so when she moved here, she moved to, um, I think she first uh, was relocated to Texas. And that's where she spent a few years. And that's where she met my stepdad a couple of years later. Later down the road, I would say I was probably like maybe six years old is when she came back. And for me, it was weird because I knew of this person, you know, we would talk on the phone and we she would send us gifts and that kind of thing. And so for me to kind of realize that I have a mom and my grandma is not my mom, it was overwhelming to think that I have two moms now um, is kind of crazy. But I remember her picking me and my sister up and and her having that conversation with us that, hey, say bye to your grandma. You won't be able to see her for a while. Oh. We didn't understand it. You know, we, we just thought, yeah. oh, we're going somewhere with this lady who says she's our mom. And I, even though I was so young, I still remember getting in the car traveling, sleeping, seeing all the lights flashing. And I woke up, I was in a completely different country. Wow. So that's what you remember of the journey mm-hmm. going across is just going to sleep and waking up and being in a different place. Yeah. Yeah. You had to, you, you kind of, you, you kind of didn't quite understand what was happening as far as being able to see your grandma and that you were really going to be gone from her and really the, the person who raised you all that time up until that time, what was, what was that like for you? Did, did it, did it sink in later that you weren't seeing grandma again or? Yeah, it definitely sunk in a little bit later after, you know, obviously days go by, weeks go by, months and then years. And that's when it kind of hit me. Um, I think it didn't hit me till I was probably maybe eight, nine, 10, right around there where it's like, everyone gets to go see their grandma. How come I can't go see her, even though she lives thousands of miles away and it wasn't as easy for us to just go and see grandma, you know? Yes, we still talked to her on the phone. And this was before technology was invented. So we couldn't really Zoom. We couldn't really FaceTime, that kind of thing. It, it was all via phone and, and cards and, and mail. So it hit me as I was older that I'm like, hey, I probably won't ever get to see my grandma forever. The, the person that raised me, the person that showed me how to, you know, dress myself and potty train me and watched me lose my first tooth and walk and all these things that people take for granted that is part of like that parent thing. I, I also feel for my mom because she missed out on all those things in being part of, of her kids' lives. But my grandma was the one that kind of was there. And for me to not be able to thank her for that, that was hard. And you yeah. and your sister are going through this together. How was that for her? And how was that for you guys and, and your relationship as you're going through that? I think, again, I wish she was here so she could um, explain the way she felt, but she's a little bit older than me. She's older by a minute. And so joke, <laughs> all jokes aside, um, we have a younger brother and a younger sister. We would always say she was the oldest, even though me and her are pretty much the same. We would always consider her the oldest, so she'd have to make all the tough decisions as, as <laughs> kids. But I would like to say like everything happens for a reason. And I think the reason why we were meant to be together and go through this journey is I always had someone to rely on. She was always there, no matter what, even when I had a bad day, even when I was eight, nine years old, when I didn't really understand why things were happening or all these emotions, she was always there to kind of help me out and talk to me. And even if it was just, even just fighting, you know, that was like, yes, you fight as your your siblings, but at the same time, it was like a brotherly love fight. We would never... Um, be disrespectful towards each other. And we still aren't. Yeah. What an awesome uh, experience to have her, you know, through that with you and to lean on each other through that. So tell me as you're growing up in the States, did you, where, where did you end up moving to? We started um, in New Mexico. And the reason why we ended up there was my, my parents had, my grandparents had lived there on my dad's side. 
And so they were the closest family that they had. So they ended up there. We were only there for maybe a year, year and a half. And it worked out because in school, our first grade teacher was um, bilingual. And so she was able, she made a big impact in our lives. We were held back a year and my mom chose that just so she could help us perfect our English and just kind of learn the culture, learn learn all about what being American is and, and the language. So we were all the, always the oldest in our class growing up, which it didn't really phase me. And people would, would always ask why. And I'm like, well, you know, there's a reason why, but I don't really want to tell you because it's none of your business. <laughs> but now I, I share it. She was able to help us out and really um, just teach us, you know, all the language skill that, that we would need. And we lived there for about a year, year and a half, uh, maybe two years. And then that's when we migrated to uh, Utah because my my grandparents came as well. Your grandparents from your 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 dad's side, correct? Uh huh. Right, right. So they came up. You ended up in Utah. What part of Utah did you end up in? In a good old Tremont, Utah, <laughs> small good, little town. <laughs> good old Tremont in Utah. And yes. what took you to Tremont in Utah? What took the family to Tremont? In? Oh, you know, back in the day. Um, I, and I think, I, I don't really know, but I have kind of like a hunch of, of why. It was such a small town at the time. Obviously, being undocumented, you wanted to stay under the radar as much as you could. Um, you didn't want big populations with a lot of people. And so I think my my guess is that's one of the reasons why they chose it. Now that I am an adult living in Utah or in, in, in Tremont, Tremont's an awesome place. It, it's small. It's quiet. It's very distant. It's close enough to other cities that you get all the modern day amenities or amenities, but you don't have to worry about, you know, all the traffic and all that. So uh, it's a little bit better, but I want to say that's probably why they chose it. You're just a small town guy. Loving that small, small town, town guy. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Tell Pretty me, uh, what did what did your family do for work when they were here? In Tremonton. I know my dad, he, they both worked field work. So my mom, for the longest time, she did field work. So she would go out in the fields, rain, sun, snow, summer, spring, winter, you name it. She would go and she would pick fruit. She'd pick vegetables. And that's what she did for a living. And my dad bounced around a few times between all jobs. And he finally landed a job that he loved. And he's still there. He's been there for, oh man, 20 some years, maybe I, I could be wrong, but he loves awesome. it. So that's what she did. And she, she would be more or less like a stay at home mom. Yeah. Yeah. So as you're growing up in Tremont and tell me about what, what, is there a point when you start to know and, and experience things that are slightly different for you because you're undocumented versus the other kids? And, and what is that like for you? Absolutely. Yeah. I think that there was always something that, you know, I, I just couldn't put my, my finger on that I knew was different. Um, and talking to my parents, they, they were kind of like the, our voice, you know, when, when it had to be, explained on why we couldn't do certain things, why we didn't go on family vacations outside of the state because my parents were, they tried to be on the DL as much as they could for the sake of just being pulled over or being asked or, you know, questions or people talking. So there was always that, like, why can't we do this? Why can't we do this? Why can't we spend the night at this friend's house? And why can't that person come over? So there was a lot of that, but I think kind of like the aha point for me would have been high school. I think that's the age where you kind of start thinking like, it's kind of forced at you like, what do you want to be when you grow up? What do you want to do? What, what's your goal? What's your dream? And I really didn't know. I knew I had dreams, but at the same time, I know those dreams probably weren't achievable and they weren't realistic in my situation. So I would say probably like my junior year is when you kind of start thinking about these things. And I, and I would say that was like the moment where I realized, wow, I'm not going to be able to do what I want to do. And I'm not going to be able to do what my friends are doing. Go to college and have that schooling experience because there's no way I can. Wow. Yeah. I want to get, I want to catch up to that college experience and, and you're having a hard time and not being able to fulfill that. But I also want to go back and, and think just a minute about what that was like when you were a kid, because 
you talked just a little bit, your parents are really cautious uh, mm-hmm. because there's always this threat looming over you uh, of the family possibly having to be deported. And so it sounds like there's a, you felt like there was a lot of missed opportunities. They were cautious. They didn't let you go places or do things because there's always this kind of looming uh, threat. Did you feel that day by day or was that just something that your parents kind of shouldered the burden of? In my younger years, they definitely shouldered the burden of it. You know, again, we kind of went to them for questions. We went to them for answers. As I got older, you know, I, I kind of realized, well, I'm not going to I'm not going to have my parents with me my whole life. You know, I'm, I'm going to grow up and I'm going to have to have my own voice. And so at the same time, it wasn't like a day-to-day concern that I would have. It was more or less like probably when I was a little bit older and I started thinking about driving. Uh, my parents, every day, you know, when we, me and my sister would get in the car, they would say, hey, remember, don't speed, don't get a ticket because you are not in the same position as other teenagers. If you get pulled over, it's bad news for you. And so that was always constantly fearful, you know, going the speed limit and if there's a cop or who's going to ask or how many people can I have in the car? Are you wearing your seatbelt? Little things like that, that most people, it's just kind of like, a, eh. you know, for us, it was a big deal. And we actually thought heavily into it. Oh, man, I got like six speeding tickets in my teenage years. <laughs> I think I got my license suspended, like getting pulled over for me, which is the regular old thing. You right. Know? And, and then for you, it's like, no big deal. Like you get totally. suspended. Oh, well, you get you get it again. But for someone in my position, that could mean you losing your driver's license forever, you know. So it's, it wasn't just as easy. And I knew the consequences behind it. And so you would always try to be cautious. You try to overthink things without ma- making it clear that you were overthinking it and still trying to blend in with everyone and, and be a normal teenager. And so you're in school. How, how, was, how was high school for you? Were you, were you a good student? Were you a, was, a, was school hard for you? I, you know, what, what were you like in school? I, I would like to say I was a good student. I think me and my sister both in growing up and again, being cautious and my parents always taught us to work hard for what you want. You know, things aren't always going to come to you. Nothing's going to be handed to you. You're going to have to work really hard for it. So I think because of that, we were great students. We received A's and there was nothing better than an A, you know, nothing better than my parents getting that report card and seeing all A's, you know, that was the best feeling in the world. And so we always strived for that. Even though we knew at the end of the day, it would mean nothing to someone like people aren't going to look at it, you know, and there's not going to be a great outcome from it. But that didn't stop us. You know, we still held ourselves to a certain standard of making sure that we were giving it our all. We were like great students. Um, But it's funny that you say like how like peers handled it, because I was telling my sister that I was going to be on this podcast. I'm like, you know, what's kind of funny now that I think about it is I never really fit it. I, I really never felt like we fit in with uh, a certain side of the group and definitely not another side. And the reason why I say that is it was a program. What, what sides? School. What sides? Tell me the sides. <laughs> so there was like Spell the Hispanic. Out. Yeah. Like the Hispanic kids and the Mexican kids, like we, we knew them and we could like communicate via the language and we are, we're friends. We still are friends, but at the same time, we never really fit in with the other kids. We were always just kind of stuck in the middle where we weren't invited to sit with the Mexicans, but we weren't invited to sit with anyone else. So luckily, I always had my sister. Like, you can ask anyone. I always sat by my sister in school. We always hung out at recess together. We got lucky to have each other because we were just kind of in our own little world. We didn't really feel like what we didn't feel. I didn't feel like we belonged anywhere because even in school, there was the uh, English. It was called ESL. It was like English Spanish learning program or something like that. And it was pretty much for, you know, children who who grew up in a minority home where they wanted to perfect their their English or maybe needed a little extra help. It's crazy to to think we were never asked. You know, we were never asked. It was always just assumed that, oh, you're fine. Your English is fine. You don't you for all we know you were born here. Um so it was and it kind of hurt not being 
asked to be in that group because all our Hispanic friends were in that group and we wanted to be part of it. And you would hear them talk about, we did this and we did this today and we're going to do this. And I was like, oh, I want to do that. I want to be part of that. But we couldn't because we were never asked. Interesting. I'm trying to think about this dynamic. And so it's kind of like there's, you know, the other Hispanic kids that probably came to the States a little bit later. Uh, Their English is not as well established. You basically had been here your whole life since you were really, really young and kind of were, you know, so you were treated like, you were treated like one of the white kids in a lot of ways and that they didn't let you into the ESL program. And so you kind of felt in the middle of that and without really a place to go. Absolutely. Yeah. I felt torn where it's like, I, I have these friends, but then I want to have these friends. I, but for some reason in school, they, those friends did not want to be friends with these friends. So I was always kind of in the middle of like, let's play with them. Let's play with them. No, I don't like them. I'm like, well, why not? Like we're all normal humans, you know, like I, I didn't understand it. Um, and I think it's just, Obviously, in elementary school, you have your own little clique and you have your own little friends, but could have been that. Maybe I'm just overthinking it. No, I think people, I mean, for whatever reason, we still see these, the, the groups divide. And you're not, I've had lots of people on the podcast that have described this, this feeling of, of not being able to quite find where they fit. And um, the other thing I know about you, because I've, because I Facebook stalked you, I haven't, didn't meet Alfredo <laughs> until today in person, but Alfredo is also gay. So yes. tell me when you, when did you discover that and how did that play into your soul into high school social life? And I know that's a complex question about when did I find out I was gay, but yeah. uh, fill us in on a little bit about that part of your life. Yeah, you bet. I mean, I I think if you were to ask any gay person, um, when did you realize you were gay? There's not really a pinpoint. It's always you right. always felt like you're you're different in some way, you know. And it's funny to say that because I remember specifically in elementary school, literally like the first couple months of school someone called me gay and I didn't even know what it was. I didn't even know what it meant. And I'm like, people knew that I was gay before I knew I was gay. Like I didn't know there was a word for the way I felt. And so growing up, it was kind of difficult because at the time my parents weren't super um, religious. Um, later, later years in the past couple of years, they're, they're faithful to the religion and that's totally fine. But it's definitely played a big role in me as an adult and, and the way I communicate with them and in our relationship. Not that it's bad, but we definitely have different opinions and different views on things. But growing up, you know, it's it, it, it was what it was. It made it even harder that it was in a small town. It made it even harder that, yeah. there, you know, it was a certain religion that was prominent in our area. It made it harder. I think I was telling you, I feel like I was a, a quadruple minority. Because um, even when I was little, I if you guys didn't know, I'm vegetarian. And even when I was little, I didn't eat a lot of meat. I just didn't think that that wasn't for me. And so here I am, little Mexican, Hispanic boy, gay, not a certain religion and vegetarian. I'm like, I just felt like I had everything against me, but I never let that stop me. You know, I always kept going. Um, and then as far as like realizing and, and decided when I, I kind of came to terms with myself and who I was, and I was proud of who I was, was probably my senior year. I, I had gone through experiences and, and just thought about what I want to do for the rest of my life. And I knew some things I, they weren't feasible because of my situation, but I was also proud of who I was and I wasn't going to let that um, stop me from being who, who I was um, and who I wanted to be. So I think my senior year in high school was kind of when I came to terms with my sexuality and decided, hey, you know what, I am what I am. I'm proud. I don't really care what people think or what they're going to say. And here we are. Wow. Very cool <laughs> to be able to come to terms with that. And a senior year in high school, like in a small town, that's no easy thing to do. No, it's not. 
no, no. Again, all. even in high school, all growing up, people would always make comments and I would always try to shrug them off, even though I knew what they were saying. You know, I'm, I'm not stupid. People think they're whispering, but they're not. I always was just the kind of person I'm like, I'm not going to let people get in my head and, and distract me from what I want to do. Yes, I'm human. And yes, I have feelings. Sometimes it did hurt. And there's many times where even as a grown teenager, I would go home crying, but it's part of life. And, and it made me who I am today. And I wouldn't trade those experiences. Yeah. Now, when you're growing up, do you think about a path to citizenship for you? And, and for, for someone who's undocumented, a lot of times that's probably marriage, right? And that marriage yeah. could possibly be a path to citizenship. Did you contemplate that and how that actually wasn't a path for you at some point? Because this is gay marriage is not legal at this time at this time. And so did you think about that? Oh, yeah, constantly, Um, because it it, at that point in my life, I wanted to do so much with my life. And I I kept thinking, like, how am I going to get there? How am I going to get there? It's funny that you say about marriage. I actually had a girlfriend in high school and we dated for a few years. And I honestly, I, I still like her. You know, she's still a, a part of my life that I, I won't forget. Um, but at the same time, I had the opportunity to really think about it and be like, hey, like this is in a way, like if we're being open, this is my ticket out. You know, I can yeah. easily marry this girl that I yeah. do care about. She cares about me. But deep down, am I going to be disappointed? And she going to be disappointed years down the road when I come to terms with, you know, who I am and, and what I am. I don't want to break her heart and let alone when kids are thrown into the mix. I'm like, what is that going to look like? So I decided not to be kind of the selfish person and, and end it for the sake of, of that. But it definitely crossed my mind many times where I'm like, dang, that was my one ticket. Now what am I going to do? And there was really no other option. It was just that, you know, and I think a lot of people think it's like, oh, you, you just get married and it's easy. You're an automatic citizen. And that's not the case. You still have to go through all the filings. You still have to go through all the processes and all the fees. It's not just getting your citizenship overnight. There's still a lot of things that go behind it. And I think for me, as of lately, um, even though I'm married now and I have been for a while, when we get to that point, someone's going to ask me, is this a valid marriage or are you doing it for a citizenship? I'm like, that's kind of offensive. That's like, how dare you ask me if my marriage and the person that I love is to benefit something else? I'm like, that's not okay. Like, how would you feel if I asked you if your marriage was fake just to benefit of something? I'm like, that's not okay. Wow. I mean, to not, to be, to be in that moment and realize that, that, Marrying someone who you aren't uh, necessarily in love with, it's particularly in that way, uh, and to know that that could be your ticket and and to all of your dreams. Because you talked earlier about how college you didn't feel like that was in the cards for you. Why why is it that why was that the case that that you you know you're getting good grades in high school, you're doing awesome, but you just you know that the reality is, is that college is not an option for you. Well, I know, like again, back in high school. Um, my parents were hardworking and we never went without, like I have to compliment them tremendously. We, we always had food on the table. We always had toys and we always had clothing on our backs and we always did fun activities as family. But at the same time, I knew the financial situation. They would always say, Hey, if you have a dream, you go for it. If, if we, we will make it happen for you. But at the same time, I, I didn't want them to break their backs doing it just for, for me, you know, and this is just my opinion, not even my sister's it's just mine. And so going into it, I knew that I wouldn't be able to afford college because I couldn't work. Um, There's no way I could get financial aid because you need to be a citizen and provide proper documentation and all that. There's no way I can provide that. And so in college, when our counselors would sit me and my sister down and, and say, hey, you have great grades and you're a star student and you're on the honor roll and 
teachers speak so highly of you and you have perfect attendance. Give me one good reason why you can't pick a college full ride scholarship. It felt, I felt embarrassed because I had to play stupid. I felt like I, I had oh, to, I had to show them that it wasn't for me. I'm not a school kind of guy. I have bigger dreams. I want to work. I want to save money. But little did they know that I had the dream to go to school. I wanted a scholarship. I wanted to go and change the world little by little, but that wasn't an option for me. And it sucked. It really sucked to sit there in front of an adult who had all this trust and and encouragement and nothing but nice things to say. And for me to sit there as a teenager and just look down and just not not even know what to think, not even know what to say. I just stood quiet. And they always said, well, you're shy. You're shy. I'm not shy. I just didn't know what to say. Wow, that's where that's really hard. You know, it's not like somebody that comes a citizen that comes from a a family that doesn't have money, they can figure out a way to go to college, right? Mm-hmm. I mean, I I got federal grants, Pell grants uh that paid for a lot of my undergrad. Uh I got I got student loans, you know, uh that enabled me to go to college and and those sort of things are just simply not an option and it's not like College is too expensive to to even mm-hmm. think about getting through without those options uh, for a family that uh, has just you know just their first generation family in in the states. You just don't have wealth. It's you know so. yeah, and, and money makes the world go round. At that point, I knew my parents weren't financially stable to to send one, let alone two, and I just knew I, I couldn't do it. And so I, I quickly like I didn't hype myself up in in wanting to go to college or wanting to experience it because I knew it was not going to be a possibility. So in a way, I kind of like talked myself out of it and told myself, you don't need it. You don't need it. I started to believe myself that I didn't need it and that I didn't for some reason deserve it because I knew it wasn't feasible. And that sucked a lot because I I had all these dreams and goals to do it. And it just wasn't something, it wasn't in my cards. And it's not until uh, 2012 that Mm -hmm. Uh, President Obama, after trying to pass legislation to make a path to citizenship through the Dreamers, um, it's which is an incredibly popular bill, uh, and that they cannot get it through Congress. And finally, he's like, "I'm gonna, make, I'm just gonna do an executive order." And he knows that this, it's possible that this could get undone, but he's he says we're going to do this. And so he passes uh, or signs into law deferred action for childhood arrivals. How did that, what, how did that impact you? Did you, when you saw that happen, were you excited to go and apply for this? Was it, what, what, what was that like? Or was there mixed feelings about it? What, what was that like for you? Yeah, there was a lot of mixed feelings behind it. Um, I, I like to say that my parents were definitely more on board with it. They were the ones that were glued to the TV and, getting all the information they possibly could because they knew that that would help us out. You know, I think at the time I was 20, maybe 23, 24, something like that. And so of course I, you know, want to experience my younger twenties and, and have a good time. So it was never really something I thought about because I'm just, I just was so comfortable in doing my thing, doing what I've been doing for the past five, six years and just working and doing this and doing that. So it never really occurred to me that that was my one chance until it finally was approved. I'm like, oh my gosh, like this is my one chance to actually work, you know, something I want to do and I've been wanting to do forever work and legally, you know, without fearing of being pulled into an office and asked about certain documentation 
or proof of, of citizenship or anything like that. So when they passed it, I remember like as, as more and more news came about it and it was just more across headlines, me and my sister started looking into it and we were glued to the TV and listening to the news and seeing what new changes would happen and then if if we could do it. And so when it finally became approved, I think in our little Tremont area, you know, we had a lot of the kids that we grew up with that were in our same shoes. Um, I think I, I like to say that I was one of the first ones who applied for it and was approved for it. And so the process wasn't easy. Um, it was expensive and it was ongoing and it was long, but I was able that I, I, I'm glad that I was able to do it because again, I have the means and I have the funds and I had the experience and people didn't really question it. They just kind of did it because of my language. I don't feel like I have an accent, but most people sometimes will say, well, I can tell you have a small accent where my peers maybe do have an accent. And so for me, I was able to kind of be like the guinea pig for them. And as soon as I, I got it, everyone started reaching out to me like, hey, walk me through the steps. What do I need? Where do I go? And so that felt good that I was able to help them out. And I was kind of the first one to, to get the doctor program. That's really neat. I mean, to, to have gone through it and then to, to have a peer that has gone through it and be able to reach out to him and say, okay, what do I, what do I need to do? And so did it open any doors for you after that? Did, did, did it, was there a big burden? Did you feel like a burden was lifted at the time? Because suddenly you're like, don't have to look over your shoulder. Don't have to worry about speeding as much. Don't have to. Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. Huge burden. I mean, most people would think like, oh, what what a big impact would have, that have made? You have no idea. For people who who suffer through like depression, anxiety, just that anxiety of every day, something lingering above you and you not being able to understand it or why, that was one of the biggest things that I could feel just was lifted off me, that I could actually enjoy what I was doing um, in my job and not have to worry about constantly fearing, am I going to be pulled into an office today? Is someone going to question it? Is someone going to ask me? And I think it's when um, the E-Verify started coming coming about, you know, um, I was a manager at, at a, a fast food restaurant and I was the hiring manager of all things. And so it sucked when I was in their shoes, but for some reason I slipped under the radar and I was able to work and I was able to, you know, work really hard and get to this position. And it was really sucky and it really broke my heart to be able to have these young teenagers want to come in and apply. And I had to turn them down because they didn't have documentation, even though I myself was in their shoes. Worst feeling in the world. And so with the verify happening, it was something that I didn't have to worry about no longer. I could just go and do a job and, and I was able to do the job of my dreams and, and travel and be a district manager and just help other stores out and learn the retail aspect. And, and I was able to do a lot because of that, that definitely opened a lot of doors. Wow. So E-Verify, that's, tell me, what is, what is that? E-Verify is a system that the companies use. So a lot of companies, businesses now, where basically um, you have to provide certain documentation when you are hired on to work. Um, it is an equal employer opportunity, they say, but um, it's all done through background checks. And so everything that is there comes up. If you don't have the proper documentation, they have the right to turn, like not offer you the job because of it. Wow. So you're a manager and, uh, having to turn away kids that are in your same shoes. That's, mm -hmm. that's gotta be pretty heavy. And yeah, what a burden to be, to be lifted under, uh, when DACA gets passed in the same sense as, you know, Trump gets elected and, you know, we know immigration was one of his main platforms to to drive home his election and anti-immigration i should say and one of his promises was to undo daca and he did it uh what when that happened and we know fast forward that uh the supreme court at least paused it 
for a time um, so that so that you and, and other people like you who have a, who have gone through and, and received their DACA status aren't getting deported. But uh, what was it like in that moment when he undid it and for you and for your friends and, and people you know that had gone through the same thing? It was discouraging. It was really discouraging um, because I think a lot of a lot of people that were in my shoes either the the reason why you would receive the DACA program is if you were it's deferred action. So if you came to the United States under a certain age unwillingly, um, and in order to keep that that DACA program or that permit is you had to be um, working or you had to be going to school. And so for a lot of kids, um, I think in my shoes and adults at that point, they they were choosing to go to school or either be working. And so it's like it's almost like you get in the routine of going to work, you get in the routine of going to school. And from one day to the next, someone tell you point blank, Hey, you can't do what you've been doing for the past three, four or five years anymore. Figure something out. For me, it was life changing. You know, um, I, I think at the time, if I wasn't semi-financially steady and I wasn't married and I wasn't in a committed relationship and I had surrounded myself with a great group of friends and family, I think I, it would have been devastating and it still was, you know, but it could have been a lot worse than, than what I thought it would be. Um, it was very discouraging and very upsetting. Um, and you just hope for the best and it sucked because there's not much you can do at that point. You know, you're not allowed to vote. You're not al allowed to voice your opinion. So when reelections happen, you just kind of bite your tongue and hope that your friends and family are your voice and that they, they do the right thing. So it was very disappointing when it happened. Is, is that hard? knowing the small town you grew up in is the vast majority of them are Trump supporters? Very hard. Very hard. Because I'm, the, and this is just me, I'm the kind of person, I never want to be disrespectful towards anyone. I believe that if, if you want to believe in what you believe or you want to do what you want to do, that's fine. But also don't shove it down my throat. Just like I don't shove my sexuality down your throat, you know? Um, and that's hard because in a small town, um, me, me and my husband, Brian, we when we go to the grocery store, we don't hold hands. We don't kiss in public. We don't do things out of respect for others. We understand that people in a small town don't feel comfortable. They may not understand it. Um, and that's totally fine. We just ask the same thing. And it, it, you'd be surprised at how much we don't get it back. You know, it's just kind of crazy. And so with that, you see people, you know, proudly um, supporting who they want to support. And that's fine. But if they only realize that what they have to lose versus what I have to lose is so much yeah. greater... Um, and it's life changing. You know, you might lose something here and there. I'm not saying that it's not going to be dramatic or drastic to your life. But for me, I could lose my marriage. I could lose living where I am. I could lose my job. I could lose everything I've worked for, everything I've ever known in this country and be sent away and not know what to do tomorrow. I, I wouldn't have any idea of what to do. It's insane that yes. we live at a time. You are an American as much as I'm an American. You, you know, you, <laughs> you literally, you're, you're a... You're an undocumented American. You've been here since you were five or six. It's insane that we live in a time that uh, an election may determine whether whether you can stay or go. Even as we like, even though the Supreme Court did put a pause temporarily on deporting those who had received DACA status, they stopped letting new applicants into the program. So uh, correct, they're yeah, not they're not allowing anyone anymore, and so it's like. The, the lucky few that were able to do it are now kind of hanging on a string of, what do I do? Like, it could be any day. It could be any day. What am I going to do? Um, and it's hard because you've already made a living. You've already established a life here. And for someone to be able to say, well, that life you just created for the rest, you know, the past 10 years, 12 years is now nothing. It means nothing. Good luck. If, I also read that they limit, like, you're not really allowed to travel back to Mexico. You're Correct. not allowed yeah. to go home. 
Nope, nope. It is literally, the Docker program is honestly literally for school and work purposes. That is it. Nothing else. You can't travel. You can't vote. You can't do anything. You're held to the same standards as any other citizen in the country. You are expected to pay taxes, if not more, because there's more fees into renewing that Docker program every single year. Um, and the fees are that's not the cheap. Other pro- yeah, that's the other thing that, that Trump changed. It used to be a two-year renewal. They, they mm-hmm. he, he dumped it down to a one-year renewal, which mm-hmm. uh, effectively doubles the fees on that on a on a population that's you know already probably uh, on average struggling. Yeah, and you think of all those college students who are on the DACA program, who their yeah. sole responsibility is to go to school. They barely have time to work a part-time job. How are they to pay for all this? All these fees? There's no way. They make it very hard for for people to, who have a dream to have that dream. Wow, and I think I read it somehow we're in the neighborhood of six hundred and fifty thousand people that are currently on the program, and these are these are all human lives and people just like Alfredo sitting here who is just awesome and hardworking, and our our country benefits from having Alfredo in it and people like you in it. Um, we need to be uh, fighting for people like you. Um, tell me, so you're married now and, uh, are you trying to get citizenship through your, through your marriage? I am. Yes. Um, again, I hope the day comes that I don't have to worry about, you know, that DACA program, but I'm also realistic and, and I'm also proactive about the situation. And so currently I'm in the process of becoming a citizen, um, through the help of the sponsorship through my husband, which again is, is another thing that scares me because if a certain person is elected, you know, that, that kind of throws up the gay rights and, and everything that we don't necessarily have the same rights as everyone else. And so it's almost like a ticking time bomb. Um, but with wow. COVID, everything is delayed and everything is closed and it's only by appointment. And so it makes it even harder. So it's almost like the perfect storm and it's not a good storm. It's like not a beautiful storm. Um, it's very, very hard to get everything um, lined up and ready. But, you know, again, I'm, I'm living every single day optimistically and I'm not going to let anything or anyone stop me from living my life and, and, pursuing a dream just like everyone else would be. So, the, I mean, even the Supreme Court nominations that have happened, uh, Amy Coney Barrett, um, Brett Kavanaugh, Neil Gorsuch, the, those three conservative Supreme Court justices, you're right. We don't know what gay marriage looks like in the future. That, that could be on the line. That could be on the ballot. And that means your path to citizenship as well. I hadn't really even thought about that. Yeah. I, I always try not to think about it, but I'm like, I literally am screwed the way. Like there's no way out of it, but I'm not going to let that get to me. Um, you just got to stay optimistic. And there's always, there's always a way where there's a will, there's a way. And my will is very big. So we I'll get there. We'll get there. By the time this airs, the election will be over, but uh, <laughs> all of our listeners need to keep being proactive in politics because uh, you know, awesome people like Alfredo's uh, lives are, uh, hanging the balance. And, uh, so yeah, I mean, thanks so much for coming on and sharing this story. I've learned a a lot about, about you and about dreamers and, um, just really, I, I know that in the future, uh, if we can expand rights for people like you create paths to citizenship, uh, our country will be better. We are, we are a great melting pot. And if we can, if we can come together and, realize that immigration is a, a by far in our country's history a net positive it is 
what has driven us and our economy and our culture and is this is this great melting pot that it is. We're, we're a nation of immigrants. Yeah, thanks for driving that home for us today. Yeah, absolutely. My pleasure. And again, thank you for, for having me. Again, like I said, there the podcast will probably air way past the election, but it's just food for thought. Food for thought that even if it's just one person, you can make a difference. Get educated and and just submerge yourself in in knowing all about who what's at stake for others. Because I think that's the beautiful thing about this country is the justice for all. I think we've lost vision on that. I think it's always um, lately been what's in it for me, what's in it for me. Um, when humanity stops fighting for each other, I think that's when we lose. I'm not saying that I'm here to change the world. I'm not saying that I'm going to create magical things, but I definitely share and contribute to the nation as much as anyone else, you know? And I think the reason why they're here is the pure luck, pure luck that they were born here. That, that's about it. And I, and I want to have the same opportunities as everyone else. Thank you so much for sharing that story. You are making a difference. Sharing the story makes a difference. Really appreciate that, Alfredo. Thanks. Absolutely. You're welcome. My yeah. pleasure. I just really want to thank everyone for supporting the pod. I want to thank Alfredo for coming on and sharing that story with us. I learned so much from him and his experience. I also want to thank Decker Yazi for our artwork and August the Great for our theme music. Don't forget to smash that subscribe button, share the pod with a friend, maybe rate us on iTunes. That always helps. Thank you all for listening, and you have a wonderful week. Though that Jim Crow side effect trapping in my state And it seemed like we had a peak of the crime rate My brothers, yo, listen, our sisters go missing And we down on the daily, some kill for the dime's sake I'd rather tell the truth while kicking this rhyme straight Half the people illiterate, can't read or write Try to enlighten them, they tell you we don't need your life See how early we leave college, straight up to the gig We don't get to graduate, we get trade up to the league With no second plan, hoping we got it made into a gig we need more doctors and lawyers, politicians and that. If you feel this in your heart, then I'm probably kicking a fat touche. And it's hard to empower a shout here. Everybody's dead broke and impoverished, y'all swear. I leave the everyday life based on mad wishes. The only jobs they have was provided by bad bitches. They'd rather get some brain and law that broad knowledge. Can't pay back selling me, and we can't afford college. Around here, the stake is always high, so they ban. Screw me, fuck the law. They'd rather leave and die for their gangs. They got nothing to lose, but they sick with hate. Mad at the world, we got a bone of people with faith. It's a white privilege. For the kids to the slave master, we were left for dead design to hit the great master. It's a setup, and we ain't meant to survive. Look how far we don't came, we made it to this land of surprise. Though the prophecy says we all been to a bride, spread the word, let it be known the heavens had to survive. Right here, live in the flesh. That's real. Americans ever gotta get up. Volume one. Yeah.